Mesdames et Messieurs, écoutez bien. Welcome to Fashion Mode with Charles Daniel MacDonald on World Radio Paris and Monaco. Brought to you in association with Force Magazine. Bonjour and welcome to Fashion Mode. This is the primetime fashion show for World Radio France, brought to you in association with Force Magazine. I'm Charles Daniel MacDonald and I'll be hosting the show exclusively for the WRP Network. In today's show, I'm going to be reviewing the growth of queer fashion genre by taking a look at its balance and the top trending queer designers and trends. I'll also be investigating how any preconceived notions of masculinity are now being challenged thanks to the V&A's Fashionising Masculinities exhibition and the rise and fall of Abercrombie & Fitch's misogyny. Queer fashion is fashion among queer and non-binary people that goes beyond common style conventions that are usually associated with certain colours and shapes, with one of the two binary genders. Queer fashion aims to be perceived by consumers as a fashion style that focuses on experimenting garments based on people's different body shapes instead of following the restrictions given by gendered clothing categorisations. Queer style is the expression of an identity that does not conform to typical cultural and societal norms of gender through the expression of fashion, typically through the combination of, though not always, clothing and accessories originally designed for men and or women. Though the impetus behind expressing a queer or non-binary identity though, fashion is typically only the desire for self-expression and it may be seen as a political act in the society and culture in which the queer person exists. The differentiation between gender norms through clothing came to more prominence and importance during the 19th century, mainly through the use of different fabrics, trims and constructions for different genders. These distinctions were meant to mirror gender roles in society as masculine clothing aimed to be a practical while feminine fashion was perceived to be purely aesthetic. Despite the entrenchment of links between fashion and gender identity, gender expression today is recognised by the LGBT community as a very personal and subjective behaviour. Queer style is therefore intrinsically tied to identity and as such, includes a vast range of aesthetics. This expression of gender through fashion is seen as a fundamental aspect of both self-realisation and presentation, with changes in clothing often playing a key role in this realisation. However, the presentation of a non-binary or queer identity through fashion often presents problems in societies wherein clothing is produced in a heavily gendered way which often, in turn, reflect that society's interpretation of gender identity, meaning that the expression of a queer identity is often politicised and restricted. In an article featuring gender non-conforming writer and performance artist Alok Vaidmenon, Vaidmenon posited that passion represented the inherent politics of a person, with queer and transgender people, whose existence is often politicised being especially aware of this, particularly for people assigned male at birth, for whom the act of presenting femininity through wearing dresses and makeup is likely to attract unwanted attention. There's a material consequence to me presenting feminine 
and that's not a material consequence to me presenting masculine. The minute I wear lipstick or the minute I put on earrings or the minute I wear a skirt, my entire reality shifts. The heightened aspect of risk for non-binary people assigned male at birth, presenting their identity through fashion, was emphasised in a 2017 study from Davidson Schuyler, showing that non-binary people assigned male at birth encountered more negative employment outcomes than non-binary people who were assigned female at birth, a phenomenon considered to be an aspect of transmisogyny. With regards to emerging designers, most mainstream stores separate male and female clothing in different sections, making it different for queer people to find clothes that fit. Queer designers are also trying to build a bridge between menswear and womenswear by meeting the clothing needs of all identities. For example, the clothing brand No SESSO specialises in using different prints, fabrics and reconstructed materials to dress body shapes, types and gender identities. Sharp Suiting is a fashion line through a Kickstarter campaign which was able to manufacture custom customised dresswear and are ready to wear a line for a niche of masculine and androgynous people. Its innovative feature consists in developing a system of measuring and tailoring techniques that minimise female curves of people who don't identify as women. This method is called anthropometrics and is androgynous alternative to the standard anthropometrics method used by most manufacturers. Maternity lines often include stereotypically feminine elements in both shapes and patterns, as motherhood and femininity are considered to be matching. An alternative was offered by the startup company Butch Baby & Co, the first line for pregnant queer individuals. Non-conforming fashion styles are gaining acceptance by a larger audience, and for this reason, brands such as Zara and H&M are trying to offer unisex clothing lines to consumers, by launching gender-neutral collections. These collections are represented by male and female models only. Also, these unisex products display an aesthetic typically considered masculine in both shapes and colours of grey, beige and brown. So, the queer fashion is being increasingly recognised by high street fashion designers and they are now showcasing it on their runways. For example, during Moschino's Fall 18 menswear and women's pre-fall show, Jeremy Scott presented a gender non-conforming look by non-binary model Oslo Grace and queer drag queen Violet Chachiki. In Violet's words, it's very important to have visual representation, to show queers are important, queers are powerful and queers are beautiful. Queers are valid and you can't erase us. Moreover, modelling agencies are starting to scout non-binary models and this is the case of my friend Ned, a South African agency that officially divides its models in male, female and non-binary sections. Overall, queer representation in fashion appears to be growing and to be increasingly acknowledged by the media, with famous examples of queer and non-binary models being Casey Ledger, labelled as the world's first female-male model, Elliot Saylor's, Rain Dove and Erica Linder, to name a few.
Is menswear the queerest it's ever been? In one word, yes. Because over the last decade or so, menswear has evolved from one trend to the next. It's fallen in and out of love with tailoring. It's embraced casual cool through style icons like Kanye, whose Hyder Ackerman era is required reading, ASAP Rocky and Pharrell. And in more recent years, it's welcomed soft boys and has been dubbed a new masculinity. For some summer 2022, though, the softness has bloomed into something altogether more brazen. A no-holds-barred, ostensibly queer flamboyance. While previous trends, whether they started on the runways, social media or through celebrity style, have migrated into the stores and people's wardrobes, and the jury remains out on whether the man on the street is quite ready for the emboldened body-bearing silhouettes we've recently been seeing on the runway. Still, while the season's collections are certainly less dictated to by conventional menswear norms, they nevertheless are tapped into an undercurrent of flamboyance, and this has always existed in men's style, a.k.a. Prince, Sir Elton John, Dennis Rodman, for all the proof you need. At Fendi, this resulted in a departure from their usual codes, typically heavily on tailoring and focused on classical men's silhouettes, with quirky twists, presenting ultra-crop jackets with waist chains. Over at Alexander McQueen, Sarah Burton's women's wear motifs were welcomed onto the house's men's wear reportage, and her signature ruffles exploded from the seams of tailored pieces, with an embroidered tank dress thrown into the mix. Saint Laurent and Tony Vacciarallo leaned into the flamboyant aesthetic of Monsieur Saint Laurent himself, while Acne Studios embraced on Gen Z styling, and brands like GmbH continued to keep queerness at the core of their aesthetic. So, there you have it. The boom in the popularity of the trend is an undeniable fact. But what is actually driving it? Well, the simple fact is, our definitions of gender expand and evolve, and so does fashion's remit. Stylist Tabitha Sanchez notes that menswear today is heavily inspired by queer people who have been using fashion to step out of gender binaries for as long as fashion has been around. And as queer people continue to discover and express facts of their identities through fashion, people will take notice and adopt these aesthetics, ultimately turning them into mainstream trends. And all the crop tops and halter necks we're currently seeing for hot boy summers, for example. For Elo Edwards, founder of Facebook Forum and publication High Fashion Talk, much of this can be attributed to the crumbling of certain boundaries in fashion over the past few years, many having a lot to do with the recalibration of dressing in relation to one's gender. Further proof of this cultural shift can be found in the Renaissance and queer celebrities such as Lil Nas X and Troy Sivan, who are more overt and playful with their styling. Then, we have the Gen Z's uptakes of genderless styles in the wake of the Y2K revival. As such, now feels an ideal time for brands to embrace a similar approach in menswear. Not only is there a market appetite, but there's also a real opportunity for brands to present a more adventurous menswear in the same way they do women's wear for celebrity marketing. It's something that brands like Giambattista Bali, Fendi and Valentino are cashing in on by exuberant men's couture looks that were all but made for a Harry Styles red carpet moment. It's well worth contemplating why queerness and flamboyance are the aesthetic brands leaning to and deciding what free and risk-taking modern men should be wearing. 
However, beyond that, it also speaks to the overreaching mood for freedom and risk-taking in post-pandemic dressing, something that also characterised the Autumn Winter 21 shows. From Eola's perspective, while Comfort was focusing the collections presented early on in the pandemic, there has been a full 180, with people now wanting to look their best being cooped up for so long. This seems to have been on the mind of Sylvia Venturi-Fendi, who told Vogue that she wanted to give a sense of freedom to this man, this season, and it's time to break all the boundaries. Still, it's well worth contemplating why queerness and flamboyance are the aesthetics brands lean into when deciding what their free and risk-taking modern man should be wearing. This is especially pertinent when we consider the very real risk that queer-presenting people put themselves up when they choose to style themselves out of line with heteronormative expectations. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean to detract from the fact that we're shifting to see a place on the runways, and it is an encouraging one. The question that begs, though, is, are people actually buying these clothes? The short answer is apparently yes. Federico Barassi, the Vice President of Menswear Buying at Sense, says that while this trend is still niche in comparison to core or commercial offerings, there's a momentum opportunity and an openness to more experimentation within menswear. Categories they've seen grow include skirts, heeled footwear and accessories like smaller handbags, all of which the Canadian e-commerce platform has offered for many seasons and is happy to see being increasingly embraced. The Federico is able to offer such a confident endorsement of this open-minded turn in menswear to make sense. Essence is, after all, a favourite retail destination for the millennials and Gen Zers to find on-trend pieces from smaller designers. In fact, the demographic constitutes the majority of the businesses with over 70% of the audience being between 18 and 34 years old. He also notes that while larger brands are continuing to embrace a more liberated approach in menswear, there is a keen interest in supporting emerging designers who have been authenticity and always embedded within this aesthetic as a core part of their DNA. Offering Dion Lee, Felmus, Lodovic de Sansarin and Teflar are all pertinent examples. Of course, even among names like these, we have seen on runways and in editorials, and this isn't always what makes it down to the shop floors. Fashion does have a habit of showing one thing and selling another, and while trends trickle down to social media, or in cases like this one trickle up from it, what we see, URL, is not always what we get, IRL. In ways which we socialise and have drastically altered over the past two years, with our interactions sifting to online spaces that naturally facilitate self-expression. People aren't physically entering spaces where toxic masculinity can restrict what they feel comfortable in or say and feel safe wearing, says Iolo, citing TikTok as a noteworthy example. So how does this boom in the more daring takes on menswear seen on the runway and on our screens translate to what your average guy on the street wants to buy? Well, Ilolo argues that only a small minority decide what to wear from a catwalk, which is a fair fact. But whereas the influencing and celebrities and their impact upon the industry comes in. It is, after all, what we see on the runway that determines what we see on red carpets and in media appearances. And people want to buy the clothes they see on their favourites. That has a huge impact. 
On social media, you can find someone whose identity and gender you can identify with, which is often a lot of people which need to give themselves permission to self-actualise. Adding that there's always been a play in distortion of gender in fashion, but what was once coveted with a tentative no homo is now much more self-assured and much more confident. It's a shift he's observed in the outfits shared on HFT. And while not everyone is suddenly dressing more flamboyant or femme, those who want to certainly feel more comfortable are doing so. In his opinion, however, this has a lot to do with second-hand markets' increase in popularity amongst the Gen Zers and the Millennials. As people once felt priced out of fashion can now make more adventurous purchases and resell them. This is something that's been noticed among people with larger followings or people who wear something and then sell it on to one of the influenced followers. Overall, there's an undeniable cultural shift to embrace fluid approaches to gender and sexuality. It's important that brands acknowledge this, whether subtly or unapologetically. Whether all of this will result in spring-summer 2022's more out-there collections being commercialised as they first appeared with us remains to be seen. Some styles are presented solely for the purpose of runway shows or editorials and will never make it into production. While brands like Dion Lee take what we see on the runway and ensure it's part of their overall retail offering. What they do remain confident, however, is that the trend will gain further traction and become more commonplace as customers become more familiar with styles and silhouettes. There's an undeniable cultural shift from both brands and customers to embrace how fluid approaches to gender and sexuality. As the Gen Z buying power grows, it's interesting to see if brands will adapt and dispel gender binaries through their collections, and it's important that they acknowledge this shift, whether subtly or unapologetically. Of course, only time will determine whether or not the trend becomes the next social menswear evolution, and as lockdowns and social distancing restrictions give way to real-life socialising, to me, it will be interesting to see how the seemingly general interest in flamboyance affects the dre men dress every way. The bottom line, though, speaks to one of the fashion's most fundamental truths. Regardless of gender and how you identify, clothing is for everyone. Fashion is fun, getting dressed is fun, or in other words, fashion is all about having a gay old time. Fashionising masculinities, the new Victoria and Albert Museum show, proves that gender has always been a construct. Journalists standing, glaring at giant plaster fig leaves in a cabinet at the V&A. This modestly saving Victorian codpiece has been hastily made to cover the down there on Michelangelo's David. Shortly after Queen Victoria had been horrified at the sight of the stark naked plaster cast of the classic Renaissance sculpture. A shock she experienced back in 1857 at the opening of her own museum, the Victoria and Albert. The big vague 
Fig Leaf is an opening gambit in the undressed introduction to fashioning masculinities, the art of menswear. The new Gucci-sponsored exhibition at the VND and it's positioned right across from a pair of white 1980s fig leaf prints by Vivienne Westwood, a 96 Jean-Paul Gaultier trompe l'oeil Greek god torso blazer, and an inspiration of 2021 underwear for transgender dren and transmasculine non-binary people by G2CB and Paxis. Quively Undressed starts us off with a confrontation with the dominant Eastern-Western European archetypes of the male body. By the way of an edit of Plastercast that began the V&A's original art educational collection, and it argues that everything can be traced back to men comparing themselves to the iconography of the classical Greek, Roman and Renaissance sculptures. Take Hercules with his bulging muscles. The normalisation of hypermasculinity like this has spawned contemporary gym culture overall. Reading a caption, we see a 1990s Calvin Klein underwear ad close by. Or the boyish body of Hermé. The idolisation of youth resonates in the treatment of young male models and performers. And this is never a truer word when you think of Hedy Sliman's abiding adherence to the straight up and down teenage body. One of Sliman's Dior home motorcycle jackets and skinny tailored trousers, which he dramatically narrowed menswear proportions to in the early 2000s, is in the show. It looks so unremarkable 20 years later and giving a testament to the sweeping influence of his look for more than a good few years. But this exhibition is time to reflect on what's currently going on in egocentric men's fashion. The expansion of what is seen, felt and being redefined around the dressing of masculine identities is the burning matter of today. Whose bodies, whose sexualities are self-actualised and centred in the mainstream beauty contest that we call fashion? While Gucci has sponsored this show and thrust emblazoned at the door is a statement from Alessandro Michel, taken from his 2020 collection notes. In a patriarchal society, masculine gender identity is often moulded by violently toxic stereotypes. It's a time to celebrate a man who is free to practice self-determination without social constraints, without authoritarian sanctions and without suffering stereotypes. The finale of the show has the Gucci ball gown that was worn by Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue in December 2020. We're all into a little gender-blurring fashion at the time, but this is also an age which insists on the presence and precision of individual voices and groups. Trans and non-binary models walk runways clothed in collections with LGBTQIA cultures raising to visibility. To a new generation, it goes beyond the bounds of putting men in boys in dresses. The challenge to establishment, male tropes can look like a Craig Green human as a metal sculpture, hidden behind dissected bits of shirts and trousers. Or it can be Jonathan Anderson's still surprising, still subversive spring 2013 collection, with its bustier frilled shorts, black leather boots edged with a ruffle. The show also attempts to include sight highlights on how creative people of multiple non-Eurocentric heritages are ending the white-only dominance of fashion, with scattered entries from Virgil Abloh, Grace Wales Bonner, Joe Casely-Hailford, Priya Aloha and Remur Rahan. The show's second collection section, Overdressed, Time travels through history to provide how it calls flamboyance and how this was embedded in European menswear for centuries. 
fabulous wonders around, echoed in sumptuous contemporary fabrics and portraits showing Renaissance princes and doublets and gold-embroidered capes, cavaliers in extravagant lace collars and flowing curls, and a Georgian arrow posturing hand on a hip on a scarlet robe, and a two-and-a-half-foot-high ostrich in a plumed hat, an icon of camp, as the caption has it. The wedding of the colour, pink, red, orange and menswear, has no limits, just as long as you were a member of the super-wealthy power elite. The quotes of working people are excluded from this exhibition, and when it comes to examining the social constructs of maleness, it feels like a bigger mission, presumably because costume museums like the V&A only acquire designer clothes, haute couture and antique treasures. The decadent splendour of a guy's clothes could eventually land him in big trouble, although a smirking French author, Jean Cazot, depicted showing off his gorgeous watermelon pink silk frock coat, with a pristine Flemish lace jabot, ended up sent to the guillotine by the French revolutionaries back in 1792. The show dances to and from between the past, 20th century and recent fashion, illustrating how cross-dressing, effeminacy and homoerotic codes are attracted to codes, say wedding flowers, are nothing new. There's a draped Eau de Nile Spring 2021 Kim Jones for Fendi Haute Couture, a dress with 3D flowers. Quite a puzzle until you know it was worn by a more model in a show inspired by Virginia Woolf's gender-switching novel Orlando. Nearby is Nicholas Gasquieri's gilded flower brocade 18th century flock coat with a pair of running shorts, the opening look of his Louis Vuitton Spring 2018 collection, which was a women's ready-to-wear show though. When women's wear designers draw in men's garments for inspiration, does that mean the clothes still qualify as menswear? This is a notion that's more than muddled. It's a visual shock to enter the last room redress, as it refers to the time in the 19th century when menswear turned black, sober and narrowed to almost a uniform. A cabinet full of black frocks and suits from Edwardian times to present day makes you realise that the sinister power of this highly segregated style must have arrived with the height of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution. We're still living that really, and the love-hate relationship with the tailored men's suit means it's been continually under subversive reconstruction by fashion designers, including Alexander McQueen's sharp satire on homosexual perversity lying beneath the Savile Row suit of 2009, a half-cutaway jacket waistcoat from whose hip hangs a single woman's stocking suspender. He called it McQueensbury Rules. It's a pity that this exhibition doesn't have any of the oversized thing that Jezebalia has done with menswear tailoring at Vetimong or Balenciaga. If ever there was a wedding in fashion form about toxic masculinity and in a line of powers of its perpetrators, then it's sure with this. But I keep returning to Queen Victoria's fig leaf symbolically, the first maleness covering garment in the exhibition. And it strikes me as something not discussed by the show, but absolutely visible that there were centuries upon centuries, from the Middle Ages through the 18th century, when menswear fashions were new in power and just kept pointing at the penis. It exaggerated it with swelling Elizabethan and Jacobean doublets and hose, and completely outlined it in cutaway coats that set off embroidered plackets on skin-tight 18th century pantalons. The Incroyable in France and Beau Brumel dandies 
satirised by cartoonists for their cosseting and groin-centric trouser displays. And when suits did come in, male genitalia completely disappeared from sight. With 19th and 20th century capitalism, it had safely tailored away while men got on with causing funding and waging two world wars. It did pop out again briefly in the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, but yes, in the 80s and the dominance of the Wall Street suit, even with what Giorgio Armani did to break down tailoring to a new cool state of louchness. The fashion outlined the penis and went in again, and it's never really came out since. Instead, the butt has, and for 30 years, ever since hip-hop and McQueen's bumsters hit the runway in the 80s, 90s. Granted, the bulge has cropped up in overground fashion recently, in the cross-waist underwear and jeans that the young Ludovic de Saint-Sermin has so successfully made a signature, but that's about it. Should a man walk along a street today in pantalons as tight as a packet decorated as the young ones a young Colonel Thrutcher wore to Queen Victoria's coronation back in 1838? Well, they may be an amazing sight, but he would likely attract boggling attention. Because in 2022, the male groin has become a no-mention fashion zone. At a time when we sincerely believe that men's fashion under ideals about expensive spectrums of masculinity are radical, liberated, free and accepting, are we really? Well, a good thing about a museum exhibition like this is that it provokes lots of questions and disagreements. One thing I think about now is how Queen Victoria might have been rather pleased with the fact that almost 50 years censorship of her male member in fashion has succeeded in making the need for fig leaves completely redundant. Fashioning Masculinities, the Art of Menswear, is sponsored by Gucci and is on view at London's Victoria and Albert Museum until November the 6th, 2022. When it hit Spain at the beginning of the last decade, the international Abercrombie & Fitch, or ANF, phenomenon was embodied in its palatial store in Salamanca, an upmarket neighbourhood in Madrid. Here, customers were received at the door by perfumed, shirtless young models with the physique of Greek gods, incarnations of the rich, white, athletic young men at the centre of the US company's then-marketing strategy which it then built an empire of basic t-shirts and sweatshirts emblazoned with the logo. How the brand got there, what happened next, is revealed in the Netflix documentary White Hot, the rise and fall of Abercrombie and & Fitch, and was created and directed by Alison Clayman. As Washington Post critic Robin Gilhan tells the camera, what Abercrombie did was create a middle ground between the sex being sold of Calvin Klein and the posh American style of Ralph Lauren. Given is joined by former employees of the brand, its models and sales clerks, as well as journalists and activists who have closely followed its trajectory over the late 90s and early 2000s, when it emerged as a pop phenomenon. Advertised by half-naked Adonis types in print media and billboards and, of course, inside the stores, the windows were closed on the outside 
and anyone drawn to the party lights and disco music inside was forced to enter to find out just what was going on. The architect of the ANF aesthetic was photographer Bruce Weber, who had worked at the time for brands such as Calvin Klein, and guys hammering biceps hanging from a tree, guys doing push-ups in unexpected places, and half-naked guys having a great time, were the words du jour. Anyone who was paying attention to see there was a lot of gay men involved in defining that aesthetic, says journalist Benzwat Denzenit Lewis. But it was done in a way that went unnoticed by the target audiences. The typical cool, straight, college guy. Bruce Weber wasn't the first to create these homoerotic pretty boy scenes that date back to ancient Greece. But the fashion and definition of masculinity caught on with gay guys in the late 90s. When asked what the brand was looking to sell, the documentary's interviewees inevitably say class, helped by the company's 1996 IPO that put it on Wall Street. In an early prototype of today's hustle culture, where the boundaries between work and play are barely discernible, ANF built a giant campus in Ohio where workers trained out in pilot models of the stores and meetings merged with regular parties and team outings. The bubble burst, however, when customers started to question what ANF was selling and how they were selling it. It turned out that not all their target audience in the US was exactly as they had profiled it, that is, Caucasian and affluent. Customers began to flag the racist nature of some of the slogans on the basic t-shirts, and it became clear that many of the brand's potential consumers were members of radicalised communities. The matter came to a head when, after the release of an ANF advertising campaign for a t-shirt bearing the slogan, The Wongs Make Everything White, featuring two Asian men in a laundromat, the homoerotic aesthetic that served as an inspiration for Abercrombie and Fitch. Asian American students protested on the doorsteps of stores across the country, and Abercrombie not only withdrew the t-shirts, but CEO Mike Jeffries, who took the helm of the company in 1992, and spearheaded the frat boys' marketing strategy, making sure that every single one of the offensive items was set on fire. Still, it was clear the company had a bigger problem than just one t-shirt design and advertising campaign, as other racist prints remained on sale, such as a cert depicting a donkey wearing a Mexican hat and eating a taco. Eating on the street is cool, it brazenly quoted. So, indeed, the problem was structural and started with its stores, Recruits for the staff were, according to a company manual, to have queen-cut hairstyles, while other styles such as dreadlocks were completely unacceptable. Reports began to emerge of former employees being told things like, we can't hire you back because you have too many Filipinos working in the store, while one store's only black worker was always put on nighttime cleaning so they could not be in public view. In the early 2000s, some ANF store workers filed a class action lawsuit for racial discrimination, which they won. Despite the ruling, which showed Abercrombie and Fitch had violated the US Civil Rights Act of 1964, the company never acknowledged that it had been racially discriminatory. The response was to hire a chief diversity officer working under the supervision of an external agent who would arbitrate on inclusion, and they began to hire radicalised people within their stores. Within five years, the non-white workforce was 53%, a dramatic shift from a workforce where 90% of the staff were white. Whiteness still continued to dominate the company's management and public-facing activities, 
and black and brown recruits worked mostly in the backroom and warehouses, while four staff and models were mostly white, and white men accounted for most administration and management roles. While this was going on, in 2006, the company's CEO Mike Jeffries made the following statement, which journalist Benoit Denzient Lewis published in Salon. In every school, there are cool and popular kids, and then there are the not-so-cool kids. Candidly, we go after the cool kids. We go after the all-attractive, all-American kid with a great attitude and a lot of friends. And a lot of people don't belong in our cause, and they can't belong. Are we exclusionary? Absolutely. So in 2009, sales had already fallen considerably in the US by 17%, but this did not stop the brand, which also included the Hollister mark, under the same aspirational model, continued to open its famous flagship stores of shirtless young men in low-waisted jeans and sandals all over Europe. In Spain, it opened in Madrid in 2011 and closed in 2021. Activist Ben O'Keefe came across Jeffrey's statements in 2013. Nothing little at the brand had changed over seven years and O'Keefe started a petition demanding that Abercrombie & Fitch include more diverse sizing. If 60% of your potential customers wear plus sizes, then why not include them, said O'Keefe, whose petition turned into a boycott by young people in rejection of the narrow body shape it promoted. The activist was invited to ANF's offices to complaint and complain and present, alongside experts and representatives of organisations working with the people with eating disorders and to consider the ways the company could change. Mike Jeffries did not show up for that meeting and he resigned from his position a year later in 2014 and has since disappeared from the map. Now helmed by Franz Horowitz, Abercrombie & Fitch has continued to struggle with its identity as young people continue to turn their backs on brands associated with racism and sexism. A report by Unidays last March showed that 87% of its Generation Z respondents believe there should be greater equality and inclusion in fashion. Meanwhile, allegations continue about inappropriate behaviour within the company over years. In 2020, photographer Bruce Weber was acquitted of charges of sexual abuse. He faced trial for the same reasons in 2021 and the case was settled out of court. The former owner of ANF's parent company, L Brands, Les Wexner, was also accused of collaborating with Jeffrey Epstein, putting the paedophile in contact with young models to invite to his parties. Now vanished from public life, Mick Jeffries lives on as a representative of everything that fashion of today is under pressure to reject. At the end of the documentary, critic Robin Givan reflects that the Abercrombie story is actually an incredible indictment of what our culture was like 10 years ago. It was a culture that enthusiastically embraced a white, upper-class view of the world, defined beauty as thin, white and young, and that was okay with excluding others. Asked if the culture has completely solved the problem of exclusion, though, the critic replies, no more information. I hope you can join me for the next Fashion Mode show, where I'll be discussing what it means to be a fashion influencer today. With more details and features to follow, you can catch up with all the fashion news on forcmagazine.com and at Force Magazine on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also keep up to date with the latest shows directly from Mixcloud, Podbean and our official profiles on iTunes, Spotify, 
Google Play and Deezer under Force Magazine. Until the next time, keep your fashion mode on.